This is Zach Braziller of the New York Post, and you're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? Doing well, Tommy. Doing very well. Another two big road wins, and now the Pirates sit atop the Big East standings at 6-0. I mean, what this week did was remind me something about college basketball is we have Miles Powell and everybody else doesn't. I mean, also, those two other seniors are pretty damn good as well. Quincy McKnight and Romaro Gill are playing at a different level to complement Powell. There are so many things to be positive about this team right now, but to know that, that we have the senior leadership that typically wins out in March and we have three of the very best playing an outstanding level of basketball at the moment is super exciting. It was a 2-0 week, Mike, but they made us sweat it out just a little bit. But we're 6-0 in conference. The winning streak continues, and the good times are rolling. So, without any further ado, this week on the podcast, we review the win against Butler, the win against the Johnnies. We go behind enemy lines with Providence Journal writer Kevin McNamara to talk about what we can expect from the Providence Friars and we take a look at how far down the road to 2494 Miles Powell is this week. Let's start it off with Seton Hall 78, Butler 70. Seton Hall got out of the gate fast with three-point field goals from McKnight, Powell, and Samuel to build a 17-8 lead, which ended up being their largest lead of the game. Butler dominated play for the rest of the half as they went on runs of 14-3 and 12-0 to build a 10-point margin at halftime, 40-30. In the second half, Miles Powell and Romaro Gill took over the scoring with 34 points combined. Powell's three with eight minutes to play finally pushed the Hall back at 58-57. Romaro Gill later fouled Sean Bastard Buckets McDermott with a traditional three-point play that temporarily regained the lead for Butler at 66-65. However, the Pirates held Butler to only three made shots in the final 12 minutes, ending the game on a 13-4 run to close out another impressive second-half performance and give the Pirates a road win at Hinkle. All right, Tommy, stats on the game. It's just, it's just becoming a foregone conclusion. Miles Powell, 29 points, 5 of 13 from three, seven rebounds, three steals, once again, doing a little bit of everything. Speaking of doing a little bit of everything, Quincy McKnight, three rebounds shy of a triple-double, 11 points, seven rebounds, and 13 assists against only one turnover. Romaro Gill, his fourth straight game in double figures, 17 points, matching his career high, and he also tallied four rebounds and three blocks. Just to put it into perspective, he had only cracked double figures once in his first 47 games as a Pirate. Jared Roden also chipped in with 13 points and eight rebounds. And on the other side of the floor, Kabar Baldwin led Butler with 19 points and six assists. And Jordan Tucker came off the bench for a double-double of 14 points and 10 rebounds. Seton Hall was a better than average 21 of 25 from the free throw line. Specifically, Ike and Gill at 80% shooting 8 for 10. 
Seton Hall assisted 18 times on their 24 May baskets and only turned the ball over nine times in a hostile road environment at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Butler was giving up 54.4 points per game and gave up 48 to Seton Hall in the second half alone. What a complete effort by the Pirates in the second half to rally back down 10. So, Mike, here's the interesting thing. Last week, we talked about whether we're taking Miles Powell for granted to a certain extent, where he pumps in a certain amount of points, and we're like, hmm, okay. Well, let's talk about this. He scored 29 in this game. It's a statement-type performance, and yet... I don't know that he played the best game out there. It might be Quincy McKnight out there that played the best game on the floor. Uh, well, so that was going to be my question to you is who who's the player of the game? Because I, I could go almost in like three or four different directions. You you want to start with McKnight? Fine. Start, start with McKnight. I'm listening. It's crazy to think that he was, like you mentioned, three rebounds shy of a triple-double. I mean, that's crazy in college. You pull off those kind of numbers, that's badass. But more importantly, 13 assists to one turnover. I mean, he's in complete control of the game these days. This is something we did not expect coming from Quincy being the combo guard, but he's truly embracing this point guard position for this team. I mean, he's averaging almost nine assists per game in league play. That's tops in Big East. There was something that kind of stood out to me relative to how he's getting those assists. He's doing it in a different variety. And what I mean by that is, you know, people are falling in love with the success of the pick and roll. And they're like, well, if if you could just lob it up to Romaro Gill for an easy dunk, or you could give the ball to Miles Powell off of a double pin down screen. Well, yeah, you're going to get a lot of assists, but he, like I said, he's doing it in so many different varieties. Not only is he getting at the Powell and Gill, he's feeding Gill on the low post on straight up, Back to the basket opportunities for Gill, where typically we ignore our guys previously when they are kind of carving out space in the paint. And Gill is hitting that baby hook. So, you know what? It's it's not a fancy assist, but it's good balance in the offense. And an assist that kind of really caught my eye was late in the game, McKnight gets a rebound, and all of a sudden one dribble, quick outlet pass to Miles Powell, kind of like that baseball home run pass, right on the money, and he put in a key bucket down the stretch. Like I said, he's doing it in so many different ways. It's really impressive. And and the pick and roll itself has become masterful, has it not? You know, you mentioned the pick and roll, and the recipient of that pick and roll is often Romaro Gill. And let me tell you, we cannot apologize to the big man enough. When last year, when we previewed the team, we expected him to go in there, give a blow, and hope not to do too much damage out there. This year, we expected him to kind of improve because he had a nice season last year, but there is no way we thought that he was going to go to this level. Since the Maryland game, he's been shooting 68% from the field, 75% from free throw line, and his numbers are crazy intense as, as since Big E's play has started. I mean, he's just improving every game. Well, and I, and I think, unfortunately, we're selling a little bit short. When I compiled those numbers for this podcast, that was through the Xavier performance. We're going to talk about what he did in St. John's later on, and he's only kind of increased those averages since. I mean, and, and it's not just what he's done on the pick and roll on the offensive side of the floor. What he's doing on the defensive side of the floor continues to also open eyes. He would kind of get caught out by the three-point line and not know how to kind of really close out or hedge really hard. Now he's hedging hard. He's getting back in position to recover after uh, the, the offensive player kind of bubbles out. And, and that's what's supposed to happen, right? The, the point guard is supposed to get taken off of his path. Gill is recovering. He's getting back in position to still block the shot. His game all around is impressive, but it's how he dominates now. It, it, so once again, not just on the defensive side with the blocks, how he dominates stretches offensively. 15 points in the second half. He got them all in the first 11 minutes and 19 seconds. He's averaging more than a point a minute during stretches of the game. That's ridiculous for what we expected from him. It, I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for words right now almost. It's crazy. And speaking of crazy, Miles Power, candidate for National Player of the Year. He had another one of those games. There goes that man, mama. And think about what he did. At Hinkle, against a top five team, he puts in 29 points. And he's the third guy we're talking about. 
it just it's not that he just scores 29 points on the road against a top five team. It's the defensive team holding opponents to 54.4 points per game coming into that matchup. I mean, the reality is Miles puts in more than half of what they were giving up on a given night. Most good defensive teams take great players out, or at least they minimize what they're able to do. You never hear Virginia going up against a dominant offensive player, and then all of a sudden you see that team put up like 90 against Virginia. They're they're, they're completely holding people out of their element. So Butler has done that to numerous opponents throughout the year, and Miles comes in and he's just like, "Ah, that's not going to happen tonight. My team needs me. I'm going to will us to the win. And we're taking it for granted. But we we, got to stop doing that. This was another night for the ages where he's kind of stamping his his legacy as a Seton Hall great. But regardless of what Gil, Powell, and McKnight did, we're kind of getting used to them stepping up now in big moments and giving that consistent performance. You keep on putting them down. Since oh, Sandro's out, oh, yeah, let, let me, let no, me no, finish. No, 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 no. Let me finish. Since Sandro went out with the injury, I've kind of you know shifted my allegiance a little bit to expecting Jared Roden to step up. So you've, you've now given him the, the pseudo title of my boy. But did not Jared Roden get in the mix for this player of the game award with his big three to ice it at the end? Oh, Michael, stop it. All right. Jared Ronan had a really good game. I like what he's doing out there. And he was hitting his foul shots, which have been a bit of his bugaboo this year. But let's take a look at the three. Let's set up the scene here, okay? Seton Hall's up late in the game. We've got two seconds on the shot clock. We kind of had a rough first inbound with only five seconds on the shot clock. He gets the ball. He shoots a three. Okay, for one, there was no other thing for him to do. Okay, I'm going to play contrarian here. It was a great shot. Don't get me wrong. Great big shot. But I've seen things saying, oh, this shot will go down in Seton Hall lore. Why is it going down in Seton Hall lore? Seton Hall's up. If he doesn't make the shot, we're still up. We play some defense. We hold them without a shot. We're still up. So don't give me this Seton Hall lore. This is not Miles Powell against Kentucky. This is not Miles Kale against Kentucky. This is not Darius Lane shooting a shot against Syracuse. Okay, there's no lore here, okay? Stop it. Let's be uh, realistic was, about it. Was it was really a good shot. To- it was a big <laughs> shot. And more importantly, his two free throws to retake the lead at 67-66, I will say are a more important play than that three. Uh, Like, I was really excited to come into this segment and go toe-to-toe with you. And I agree with you. This is no fun. (laughs) No fun. Because you're right. If if he misses the shot, we're playing at a high level of defense. Butler's still got to hit a shot to tie it. You know, they got to hit a three to take the lead. We're still in a good position. I know they had a lot of momentum if he doesn't make that shot. But you're right. The pressure to hit that shot when you're losing on the road versus being up by two and kind of playing with a little bit of house money, it doesn't diminish the fact that it was a big shot. But this, you know, in the lore of Seton Hall, regular season, big moments, it's a a good moment, but it didn't win the game by itself. So I'm with you. I want to kind of rewind to what you just highlighted. The roof was off the building after McDermott hits the basket to tie the game. Gill fouls out. I mean, then he hits the free throw to give them the lead out of the timeout. And that place is just nuts. And, and it was nuts all game. And they got taken to another level. Roden makes a composed play, you know, pump fakes, drives the lane, gets the foul. He's not a good free throw shooter. I mean, maybe he has it in him, but he hasn't showed it so far this year. Very inconsistent from the line and ice water in his veins. He makes those two get Seton Hall back over the hump. And then Powell comes down and hits the three to give him a, a two possession lead. I'm with you. Those free throws were just as big as a three-point shot that he hit. And there's no question. You, you mentioned it, and I'll say I, I give kudos to the Butler crowd. That's a great crowd. That's a great place to play. I, I'll even say that's better than the Iowa State uh, home court, man. That that's a that place gets crazy loud. Well, that, this, this was a really good basketball game. The, the Iowa State game was a slop fest if those fans didn't get a chance to really get into and appreciate good basketball. But speaking of being able to appreciate quality basketball one half versus the next, this game was completely a tale of two halves. I mean, you're going to be shocked when I say this, right? Because I I think a lot of the press clippings were Seton Hall has a bad half. Seton Hall has a great half. I don't think they played that poorly in the first half. And and here's what I mean. We came out with good energy. Normally when we play poorly on the road and have a bad first half, we're getting punched in the mouth. We came out and punched them in the mouth. 
We hit the first four shots. We had good ball movement. And then Butler kind of, you know, they weathered the storm. And let's just let's just accept reality. Butler was hot. You know, they're, they're averaging seven made three-pointers per game, and they go five for 10 in the first half. You know, they shoot in the 40s, and they shoot 56% overall from the floor. You know, their big guy, Golden, is hitting jumpers from 18 feet out. McDermott's hitting crazy reverse layups to go into halftime. I mean, if it could have gone wrong for Seton Hall with Butler being on their A game offensively, it did. And, and then we went to, into our typical cold stretch. But let me ask you this. Did, did you see a lot of bad shots in that cold stretch? I mean, there were open shots that just weren't going down. No, you're correct. I mean, the the problem is, is that the result was bad. So everyone's looking at it okay. going, oh my goodness, okay. we're double digits down. But what's crazy impressive is if you take the second half as a whole, we scored 48 points against a team that gives up basically 54 a game. If it started at 0-0, it's a 48-30 game. We dominated that second half, and, and you don't notice it as much because it was a close game down the stretch. But we rallied down from 10, and it was, it was just a virtuoso performance down low. We had a lot of guys stepping up and posing their will on it. Look, we can find things that they didn't do well in that first half if we really want to nitpick. I wasn't a fan of the hockey substitutions. That that kind of turned the momentum. He brought in his bench uh, as a collective group, and they just didn't have it this night. And we took 17 three-pointers. I think that's what's going to happen when you're going up against a strong defensive team. You're going to end up late in the shot clock in a lot of possessions. They weren't bad looks, but you're going to end up settling for more three-pointers. They, they took 31 for the game. I, I wasn't a fan of taking 31 three-pointers. And when you go 5 of 17 in the first half, that's going to contribute to being down 10. But conversely, they hold Butler to 1 for 11 from 3 in the second half. They hold them to 9 of 30 from the floor, only 30%. And you know what? When Gil fouled out, I, I can't believe, like, I'm, I feel like I'm picking on Gil every time I say this because I never would have said this in the past. When Gil fouled out at the four-minute mark, I kind of felt like we were going to lose. Didn't you? Like, no, because was- I expected Ike Obiagu to come in and play solid defense, and that's what he did over the last four minutes. He buckled down. BS, BS, and put a lie detector test. Ike's coming in the game, and he's going to just continue the performance that Gil was bringing at that moment. We didn't drop off. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, we're going to really test Ike here. They're going to attack him. It's like the two-headed monster just continued, right? There was was no drop-off whatsoever. Ike is really, really starting to turn the corner, and he does it in a hostile road environment in crunch time. It, It was, wow, a really collective effort. And that's why I think sometimes we highlight who's the player of the game. This was a team effort. Yes, Ike had a really good game. But you know who had a bad game? The FS1 production crew because the sound quality on that game was hideous. (laughs) And I think they even apologized for it. Normally you don't have that happen. But Brando's like, uh, if you're frustrated with our audio quality, so are we. So we apologize for that. Well, you, you know what, Jim, though? That audio quality being so bad was hiding a lot of the stupid things these announcers were saying. Now, I like Tim Brando normally, man. I think, I think he's usually a good listen, but today he was off his game. Well, we had, we had Tim for not only this game, but we had him for the St. John's game. So for our stupid stuff, the announcers said, I'm going to pick on Tim twice. I mean, once again, maybe we're starting to nitpick a little bit, but, you know, Tim sits there and goes, At one point, Coach Willard is a commodity in this industry because he was courted by Virginia Tech this summer. So this this is not to be a shot at Kevin Willard in in any way whatsoever. Seton Hall playing a high level of basketball, he's going to get looks from other programs. There's no doubt about it because he's already gotten those looks from Virginia Tech last year. But Virginia Tech, their program now puts you in the commodity classification. You know, like if if like Arizona comes calling or UCLA comes calling, you know, uh, then maybe you could get the commodity classification. Since when is Virginia Tech considered the elite of the elite that you get commodity? I mean, he needs to go to like a, a dictionary and look up what the definition of the word commodity is. You know, the the St. John's game didn't help Timmy at all because at one point he made a comment about how. When Ike Obiago comes in for Gill, he doesn't have the same presence because of Gill's height. <laughs> I, I think someone needs to get Timmy a stat sheet because they're both 
legit seven foot two guys. No, no, T T Timmy needs a map of New York City. He he starts off the broadcast all hyped up, going, "We got one side of the borough versus the other," and I'm like, yeah, New "Jersey's not a borough, there, Timmy." Uh, but you know, I, at that point, you're kind of settling into your seat. You're getting your beer. We're having our breakfast here at eight, you know, nine o'clock on the West Coast. So I think that kind of gets glossed over. But I was like, pause, write that down. Timmy, Timmy's taking the dirt nap on that comment. Essex County is now the sixth borough of New York. How about that? But speaking of the borough war, Seton Hall 82, St. John 79. It was a sloppy first half with both teams combining for 22 turnovers. Seton Hall drew within one at 28-27 on a Miles Powell three-pointer. But St. John's continued to ratchet up the pressure and ended the half on a 15-3 run to take a 43-30 halftime lead. In the second half, the Pirates flipped the script again. They immediately cut the lead down to two, 51-49 after only five and a half minutes of play. From that point on, it was as entertaining a game as it could be. Nine lead changes, seven ties. The Hall looked to their upperclassmen to pull this one out as Powell, Kale, and McKnight combined the score of team's final 26 points from when the game was tied at 56. All right, Tommy, stats again on this one. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Miles Powell, 29 points, another six rebounds. Quincy McKnight, once again, stat sheet stuffing, 20 points, seven rebounds, five assists. Romaro Gill, another double-double, 14 points, 13 rebounds, six blocks. Miles Kale was back, 12 points and six rebounds. St. John's had three guys in double figures. Uh, Heron, 18. Figaro was 16. And Josh Roberts, 16 and eight rebounds. St. John's dominated the first half. Once again, 13 to one in, in first half bench points, really turning Seton Hall over with a total of 15 team turnovers. Most of those turnovers coming from Anthony Nelson and Quincy McKnight. Nelson, four, and McKnight, five. But in the second half, Seton Hall only turned it over four more times. Eventually, it imposed its will during the comeback. Plus nine on the glass overall for the game, plus 13 from the charity stripe, and an efficient six of 14 from distance, and another 10 team blocks. And when you start looking at the collective stat sheet, when the game's over, Seton Hall is imposing its will and taking over games down the stretch, Tommy. Well, Mike, I'll tell you what, watching the first half of this game, like you said, over breakfast, I was getting a ton of DMs, a ton of text messages from angry Seton Hall fans. And I think it kind of came down to this. I don't think St. John's is really that good a team. I think Coach Mike Anderson does a spectacular job squeezing as much energy and effort from his team as possible. And they like to slop it up and get those balls, those loose balls and such. But when it comes down to it, people are looking at it saying, this is a lot less talented team than Seton Hall is. And, and the problem comes is this is the second straight first half that they came out and got double-digit deficits. So the question is, Mike, should we be known as the comeback kids or should we be known as the team that doesn't come out focused and prepared? Or is it both? I don't even know really how to attack this one, to be honest, because I don't want to poo-poo St. John's. I mean, like you said, we are a superior talented team compared to their roster, but... Big game for them. You know, their backs are against the wall. They're one and four in conference play. They're trying to do their best to get a signature win. You know, there's a big crowd in the building. It, it is a rivalry game. And Anderson was able to kind of take the, the momentum of the game, the, the pace of the game, and play it the way St. John's wanted to. And they literally were able to cause all these live ball turnovers. That's where St. John's is at their best. They're, they're not good in the half court. They're not a good shooting team. But if they can get you to play helter-skelter, up and down, chaotic kind of basketball, that's when they're going to be at their best in, in their element. And in the first half, there were, there were a couple stretches. Probably the first 10 minutes, they did what they wanted to do. Seton Hall rallied. And then the last four minutes, they got back to that helter-skelter. Is that Seton Hall's fault or a compliment to St. John's? You tell me. You know, I, I think they came out, and I, while I was watching the game, they seemed really lackadaisical in that first half. 
you know, the passes that they normally expect to have open open lanes with. The Johnnies were jumping. The Johnnies were pressing up. They weren't letting you get past half court with someone in your face. The pick and roll was starting way high, and that ended up meaning that Romaro Gill ends up needing to handle it a lot longer than he normally does. So I don't know that we came in really maybe respecting the effort that St. John's was going to go put out there with that pressure or not, but I, I don't know. It, preparation... So Focus. To me that, but that's not being focused. To me, that's just them executing their game plan better than us doing what we wanted to do. And then, and then let's let's tackle the other half of that question. It was, are they the comeback kids? I don't know if they're necessarily the comeback kids, because I just feel like this team has better poise than other teams in the past. Last year's team got down into big holes, and we're not talking about ten points, twelve points. We're talking like. 20 plus in a couple of games, specifically the game at Madison square garden against St. John's. And they've had the propensity to rally back. They were down 17 last year at Butler and they rally back to lose by two. So there's a difference between last year's team and rallying back and just being in difficult road environments, finding yourself with the other team on a run and having the poise to know if you play your style of basketball and continue to do the right things on the court, that your talent level and your execution is going to get you back in the game and ultimately carry you to the victory. That's how I feel about that team. I wasn't sitting there comfortable at halftime knowing that we're down 13, but I wasn't panicked either. Right, so you're not panicking, but there's got to be some concern about some of the facets of our game. I mean, people are going to start picking up on the fact that, hey, we have a little trouble with ball pressure. Uh, weren't you concerned about the ability to press, break the press yesterday? Oh, totally, because they were trying to do it, as you mentioned to me via text, as we we're watching the game, that it was more one-on-one. And we, you know, outside of Nelson, who was also having his difficulties, that's not McKnight's strength, is to take the guy by himself off the dribble. That's just that's not what he does well. He's been playing a great point guard, but let's just identify what some of his you know lesser skill sets are. That's not one of them. So I would have liked to see more of a collective, you know, pick and roll deep in our backcourt to kind of free them up. Or as you said, let's pass to break the press instead of just trying to dribble to break the press. Kind of some, some basic stuff that I think other teams are now going to scout us on. And we're going to see more and more throughout the year until we show that we feel comfortable and can not only break it, but penalize the team by scoring off the press. We were not aggressive trying to shoot the ball or attack the basket once we got numbers the other way. That's what I would like to see. Okay, enough of the negativity. Let's talk some positives. I'm not well, going to wait to talk about him as a third player or a fourth option here. Miles Powell decided that they weren't going to lose that game yesterday in the second half. And he said, I'm going to do everything I can. So if you look at Miles's game, he had a very nice game. He, did, he shot the ball relatively well as a whole. But he went 9 for 11 from the field in the second half. And he finally re regained some of his stroke from three, although he didn't take that many. I think he went three for five from three. I mean, it was the Miles Powell show. That's all I could say. Let's go back to last year for a second. Outside of the first round Big East tournament matchup against Georgetown, where he goes nuts and breaks the record for points and a half in a Big East tournament game. When has Miles kind of got out that hot in a first half? Can you, can you give me another game? I'm not the walking encyclopedia, Mike. I'd have to actually go take a look at this, but I don't, okay. I don't recall a game like that, no. No, but to me, Miles is a closer, right? There's the Waffer game. You know, there's the Marquette game. There's there's yesterday against St. John's. It's the big shots that he hit uh, at Creighton last year. Miles is a closer, right? So all I'm expecting this team to do is play solid defense, stay close enough, and then, you know, back to my intro, we have Miles Powell and you don't just get out of the way and let the man win the game for us. Now we have enough complimentary pieces that are playing well, like Q and others that he doesn't have to do it all by himself. But when he hit those last two buckets to close out that game against St. John's, nobody else was taking that shot. You didn't want anyone else taking that shot. And I had the utmost confidence that he was going to find a way to win that game. Did, did you not? Oh, absolutely. And you know who else other teams don't have that we have? Romaro Gill and spoiler warning we're gonna be overly repetitive here but Mike we need to take a look at what Romaro's been doing in the Big East season so far 
His scoring average, just in Big East play, is 12 and a half a game. He's grabbing six and a half rebounds, and he's blocking over three and a half shots. He could be in contention for Big East Defensive Player of the Year, Big East Most Improved Player of the Year, and he's got an outside shot of being that all Big East team himself. I'm, I'm going to say this for the last time. I want to go back to our very first podcast that we did last year when we started this whole thing out and we were doing our player predictions. And I want to literally burn that tape because we just had Gil as an afterthought. And what you just rattled off is becoming common speak on every telecast. It used to be the joke of, well, Gil's a legit 7-2. They're not saying that anymore. They're, they're not showing uh, skinny Miles Powell versus fat Miles Powell. It is Miles Powell Player of the Year. It is Romaro Gill. If you haven't heard about him, where have you been? You know, we are getting the attention. Excuse me. These players are getting the attention that is well-deserved because their performance speaks volumes at this point. It is a good time to be a pirate, and these guys deserve everything that they're getting from the media relative to how we were picking on them as things were kind of going south early in the season. It's just it's, – it's night and day. And Gill's game is, once again – a revelation from where we thought he was going to be when he joined the program. And, and I know you don't particularly like the blocks where he throws them around, but he was well, really impressive. There were a few that made me say, whoa, did you see that? But Mike, what did I see, Tommy? I saw the refs have blinders on. What the heck was going on with those incorrect calls at the three-point line? I mean, did they not brief these guys before the game started that – hey, we're in Madison Square Garden where they play NBA games and the NBA line is permanently affixed to the court and that, hey, that's not the line today? <laughs> Miles Kale hit two three-pointers in the second half that we had to go back to the scorers and plead for them to take a look to overturn those calls. I mean, take a look to overturn them? They weren't even close. I mean, his foot was barely on the line for the NBA three. And here's my bigger issue. He hit one to start the game that was an NBA three-pointer. And once again, his his foot was like on the line. The score was 10 to four and Kale hits one when we actually broke the press in the left baseline corner. And I'm sitting there going, all right, 10-7. And the score says 10-6. And I'm like, oh, his foot must've been on the line. I went back and replayed that game after the fiasco of the second half. And I'm like, there's another one. What happens if we lost that game by a point? Were we gonna go back to the first two minutes of the game and call out the fact that they screwed up that call as well? Oh, man, that got me hot. Well, according to a John Fanta tweet, uh, communications director for the team, Thomas Chen actually pointed that out to the referees. So, hey, Tommy Chen, you you earned your check this week. Look, I, I, this, we mixed it up a little bit, right? We give, we give you something on the refs with the board. Did you see that? And I know you you never want to give this to the opposing team, but can we, can we go back to the Butler game? that Kamar Baldwin reverse layup high off the glass where Tim Brando's like killing me softly. That was a pretty sweet, pretty sweet bucket at that point. Yeah. Kamar Baldwin plays really well. I, you got to love a guy like Kamar Baldwin. He does a little bit of everything, plays hard defense. Man, no, that was a really great uh, shot right there. But you know, what's going to be pretty sweet. Mike, you mentioned that shot being pretty sweet. How far up are the pirates going to jump this week in the AP rankings? So in my opinion, I I'm going to kind of deviate a little bit from what everybody else has been writing. Everyone's like top 10, right? Cause it's just sexy to write top 10. You know, this is like going back to like George Carlin stand up. It no one says, Hey, top 11, right? You know, it's just 10 sounds, you know, important. 10 sounds special. I don't think Seton Hall gets into the top 10. There were losses littered all over the top 25 again this week. There were a total of 16 games in which a top 25 team lost. But kind of where they stacked up, I think Seton Hall is going to move up about six or seven spots. I think they're going to come in around 11 or 12. It's hard to have a team this late in the season jump from 18 10 spots up. Everyone wants to kind of parallel it to what Michigan did early in the season. Well, there was no body of work right then. People are kind of still trying to figure out who's who on the season. And then Michigan rips off three big wins in one week against majorly ranked teams that, hey, we were hoping we could do that. That could jump you from not being ranked into the top five. And everybody wants to kind of use this win at Butler as this launching pad to jump 10 spots. I don't see it. You know, I'll give you an example here. Duke was third 
coming into this week at 15 and one, and they lost twice. We are now 14 and four. Duke's 15 and three. Are we jumping ahead of Duke? No, we're not going to no, jump ahead of Duke. No, we are You've not got too many. You got too many AP voters that don't really pay attention to anything that are going to say Duke's still going to be up high. So it's not sure. going to happen. Sure, I, I'll give you two others. So Auburn was undefeated. They were fifteen and zero, and they lost twice. Auburn hadn't really beaten anybody so far this year, and they lose to two unranked opponents. Could we jump ahead of Auburn? That, now that's something you can debate, I guess. You know, I mean, okay. you're, you're going to fall I, down. A, you know, you mentioned it. They haven't played anybody. I could see Auburn falling into the mid-teens. I agree with you. So I'll say yes to Auburn. Same situation with Butler. 15 and one. They now lost twice. I think that you know them at 15 and three, us at 14 and four. We jump ahead of them. I don't think the seat. I don't think the Seton Hall game hurt Butler as much. I think the DePaul loss hurts Butler big time. Okay. Okay. Oregon, they were eighth. They are now also 15 and four. They kind of squeaked one out in overtime uh, at Washington to, on, on Saturday, but, but they lost. They got one win better than us, but they beat us head to head. Do we jump ahead of Oregon? I know. I, that, I, I don't know. I know it doesn't work that way. I bet Oregon stays ahead of us though. I, I would say so too. I think we passed Kentucky at 10 who lost. We, we passed West Virginia at 12. We passed Wichita state at 16 and lost twice. We passed Maryland at 17 that lost. That's about five to six teams that we should jump. You're at 18, boom, 11 or 12. I, I don't see us jumping teams that did not lose. So how do you jump Louisville that beat Duke? How do you jump West Virginia or Dayton or Villanova or Michigan State? I think it's going to get to that point in the season where, you know what, you win, somebody else loses, you move up. You're not jumping ahead just because your Ken Palm says you're number 11. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. I, I think 11 sounds about right after the week like this. You continue taking care of business, see what happens in the NCAA this week, and you might kind of slowly crawl up. This is where you slowly crawl up from this point on. You're not going to make huge jumps here. You know, from 25 up to about 15 is when you make your jumps, and now it's kind of going to be a slow, staggered move. Well, if you want to get excited about, you know, the prospect of moving up the following week, you only play one game next week. So you win that game and then other teams might have to, you know, face two challenges to kind of cement their rank for where they are. So this is one of those weeks where you really can take advantage of, I win one game, I sit back, I watch, and maybe other teams just cannibalize each other and you continue to move up. But uh, I'm not feeling top 10, even though everybody else is writing top 10. I'll, I'll eat crow if I'm wrong. I, I think they're, like I said, 11 or 12. And who do we play this week but the Providence Friars? And we're very lucky to have on as a guest someone that covers the Friars. He is a sports writer for the Providence Journal and has covered the Providence Friars for 30 years. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Kevin McNamara. Kevin, how are you today? Tom and Mike, doing well. Doing well, and I hope the weather in San Diego is a lot better than Rhode Island. <laughs> I, I can't complain, but we've gotten some some rain lately, so I'm a little uh, little wet. Not, not to my liking. All right, Kevin. I really, so, I, I really, I really feel badly. About <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kevin. So, so Providence had a tough loss this Saturday at Creighton, seventy-eight to seventy-four. But despite the setback, they're now five and two, dating back to their blowout win of Texas. Something seems to be clicking all of a sudden after a very disappointing non-conference slate. What would you attribute the recent success compared to what they were struggling with early on? Yeah, I would say desperation, guys. In all honesty, uh, you know, the season kind of turned for the worse at the Wooden Legacy out in Anaheim. They lost to Long Beach State in crushing fashion uh, in the last second of a game. Then didn't play well and lost to Charleston. Then they come home and uh, lose a rivalry game at Rhode Island. Rhode Island's good this year, but uh, Providence was in position in the last five minutes and faded. And then they go to Brooklyn and play Florida in neutral court game and get completely blown out. And in all honesty, I think they were embarrassed. And at some point, you know, you got to look inside and, and see what's in your chest. And uh, as you guys said, the, the, there's ability there. You know, the Friars were picked by the Big East coaches to finish fourth in the league this year. And I didn't disagree with that prediction. And then they come out and beat Texas right before Christmas. And I think just went home and, and with some confidence and in all honesty, then they caught a little bit of a break. They played Georgetown at home in their Big East opener without Mac McClung. And Georgetown was awful in that game. Uh, Providence jumped on them early. It, it was an easy win. I, and I think when you get back-to-back -back wins like that, you, it's all about confidence. You know, the, people forget that these are young guys. 
Uh, I think the conference was really shaken in a seven and six non-conference. And then, uh, you know, they come out and beat Georgetown easily and then get two road wins, uh, both by one point. And I think we all know that these Big East games, we, we've watched the first couple game, uh, weeks of the season, and so many come down to not only the last minute, but the last possession. And Providence was very fortunate to win two. Uh, of course, these things even out, and they lost really one in the last possession or two at Creighton on Saturday. So they've been in an awful lot of close games uh, this season. Now, you mentioned some desperation after some subpar losses to start the season, but expectations were pretty high for the Friars this year as they were expected to get back to the tournament. And the program itself had gotten used to lots of success. I mean, five consecutive 20-win seasons before last year's 18-16 and 16 campaign. Now, on the show, we have a habit of saying we love ourselves some Ed Cooley, but did he receive any criticism locally after the start this year? Oh, no question. Uh, Friars were a major disappointment. I would say the probably the home game where people started to say, well, what is wrong with this team was Pennsylvania, which was even before the trip out to California. Penn came into the Dunkin' Donuts Center and beat Providence 81-75, kind of controlled the whole game in all honesty. That was after a, an earlier loss at Northwestern, who was picked to finish last in the Big Ten. Uh, but but basketball-wise, strategy-wise, I, I think I can put my finger on a couple things in the first you know two months of the season. So so they took a fifth-year grad transfer point guard, Luan Pipkins, out of uh, UMass, and kind of plugged him into a veteran group that had you know ability, but it's awful hard, or it certainly was for this team, awful hard to plug in a senior point guard. Uh, I wouldn't say a shot first point guard, but he, he's a better scorer than he is a playmaker into an established group. Now it was an established group that badly needed a floor maker. And that's why they went out uh, and, and, you know, took Pipkins, but it clearly took a while for him to mix in and blend in with this group of players. Uh, you know, now it's mid January and he, he is not the perfect fit. Uh, the, the perfect fit for this group would have been a pass first, better defender, a little sturdier guy. And that's not the way that Ed Cooley went. He went with Pipkins and, uh, you know, I, I think he makes them dangerous, but it has not been a perfect fit. See, that's, that's an interesting point there, Kevin, because if correct me if I'm not mistaken, when Providence recruited David Duke, he was supposed to be a point guard, no? Well, you know, if you look one year further back, they took a top 50 rated point guard named Makai Ashton Langford from uh, actually he, he and David Duke played both AAU and, and, and uh, high school prep school ball together. And I think in the grand scheme, he was going to be the point guard. David would be an off guard uh, guys like AJ Reeves, who's another top 50 recruit uh, would be a wing alpha Diallo on the wing uh, inside with Nate Watson and Khalif young, you know, and, and an awful lot of pieces. Well, Makai Ashton Langford played two years at Providence and, and, and just wasn't good enough. Um, he chose to leave. I don't think the coaches cried about it. Ended up landing at Boston College. Uh, I wish him well. I'm not quite sure if he's going to be able to make an imprint in the ACC either, but he certainly didn't in his two years at Providence. But that put you know Cooley in a, in a, in a bind. Uh, they really didn't have another established point guard. Uh, in the program, and that's why they had to go out and get Pipkins. Uh, David Duke is, I'd say he's a combo. I think he had a huge, huge game at Creighton on Saturday, his biggest offensive game in his career by far with 35 points. Uh, he's an elite defender. I think he's one of the best defensive guards in the league by far, uh, but he's not a pure point guard either. And, you know, I, you guys mentioned off the top, I've been doing this for a long time. I remember Rick Barnes when he was at Providence back in the early 90s, he got in a similar trap that Cooley has faced the last two years where he had thought he had a point guard or a point guard got hurt. And it, anyways, he ended up having to uh, plug and play a point guard who, who just wasn't good enough. And I remember him saying to me in that Southern draw that he has, Kevin Mack, I ain't ever going to go into a season without not two point guards, but three. <laughs> and, 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 you know, if you think about it in college basketball, now, if you have 13 scholarships, you better have at least two good ones and two who can play. Uh, and if you can have three, you can be pretty dangerous. And I think Seton Hall is a good example of that. 
Well, we've always debated about that at Seton Hall, that maybe we don't have that kind of point guard depth because we've been rotating guys that fit that more combo skill set and putting them into a natural one position. But sticking with Duke's performance the other day at Creighton, you're right. He goes off for a career-high 36, clearly the best game he's had as a a Friar. What has he done to kind of turn the corner? You know, really, really hard worker. Uh, You know, putting an awful lot of time in on a shot. His shot last year was really... Uh, you know, again, as a freshman, you know, you're not going to be the top offensive choice, but he saw an awful lot of time and, and was a really, really promising defender right out of the shoot, but he just wasn't a good shooter. Well, this year he is a good shooter. He, he's a good three-point shooter. He's very dependable. Uh, going to the basket, he has that explosion, not quite of a Chris Dunn. And, you know, because, you know, Chris was at Providence and was a local guy, he, he's been compared to Chris Dunn almost from the time he was recruited, that's really unfair. You know, Chris was the number five, six pick in the draft, you know, for a reason and is leading the NBA in steals, I believe right now. So, uh, you know, kind of an unfair knock, but David's a good player. David is far from Providence's issue. He's one of their answers and and it will be an all big East player. uh, I, I think multiple times before he graduates from Providence. Well, Providence has done a real good job of drawing in guys like David Duke and uh, speaking of big, highly recruited guys, you know, they've brought in three top 100 kids in the last two years in A.J. Reeves and Greg Gant. How do you feel those three have performed to date considering all the recruiting hype? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, Providence's entire roster right now uh, uh, is made up of top 100 guys pretty much. Uh, Nate Watson is a top 100 guy. Greg Gant, as you mentioned, is a freshman. David Duke. Uh, Alpha Diallo was was a you know li- kind of latter half of the top 100 coming in. Um, uh, AJ Reeves, I think there's a big difference, guys, between being rated you know 40th. First of all, God bless them. I, I, they lose their summers, they lose their springs, they have no life. I have no idea how much travel that the guys who do these ratings, uh, the, the amount of time that they put in. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, you and I and my wife could go out and, and get the top 10, 15 kids in the country. That's pretty easy. I think from 25 on, 25 to maybe 150, we might be able to come up with who those are. But to rank them, it's ridiculous. They, they, just look at some of the guys who have starred in the Big East, uh, you know, in the last five years, in the last 30 years, who weren't ranked in the top 50, who weren't ranked in the top 150. And they go on to become all-time greats at their schools. So, you know, the f- fans and media, uh, you know, I've been guilty. Of hey, whenever Providence recruits a top 50 guy, it's in the first couple paragraphs of my story. You know, good for them. What does it mean? What does it mean? It, it's all about opportunity and production. And, you know, there's so many kids who go to who pick schools for the name or they go to a place where they don't have that opportunity and don't have a chance to put up the production. Uh, but but back to your question. Sorry to riff there a little bit, but AJ Reeves, he's a shooter who hasn't shot the ball well. That's what he is. He, he's he's not a great player. He's a shooter. Uh, he's becoming a better player, becoming a better offensive player, putting the ball on the floor, uh, playmaking a little bit. Uh, but you know when when you're a shooter and you're shooting 30% from the three, it, it's tough to you know be a productive player. I, I think he will be a good Big East player. Uh, he's a four-year player. He's only a sophomore. Uh, he's also been, he had a really bad injury last year that cost him the, a big chunk of his freshman year. I think that set him back. Uh, Greg Gant, uh, I think has a great future, six, seven long armed, really athletic forward from Fayetteville, North Carolina, uh, was looking good for the first two weeks of this season. Uh, and his mother died, uh, and he had to go home for two weeks. Uh, mentally, he was obviously, you know, out of it for for a while he's only been back into the starting lineup now these last two games so i i think it'd be really interesting to see what his production is uh over the over the next six weeks but providence is in, in a position where if they do get one of those top 50 top 100 kids usually they do get that opportunity to produce because the, the, you know they're not stacking up mcdonald's all americans like cordwood well, you talk about opportunity. To, in our eyes, Providence and Seton Hall are very similar schools, similar programs. What's Providence been able to do to put them over the top in landing these caliber of kids? Well, it's interesting you say that. I've actually had this discussion 
with Ed Cooley uh, only a week ago. As you know, uh, Ed is a very popular coach in the league because of his personality and whatnot, but he probably has uh, two really good friends uh, among the other coaches. One is Greg McDermott. that They actually spend vacation time together with their wives and whatnot. And the other is Kevin Willard. Uh, he's known Kevin for a long, long time, back when Kevin was an assistant coach and then a head coach at Iona while Ed was uh, at Fairfield. So they've been coaching against each other for a long time, and they spent some time this summer, well, actually a long time. If you guys get a chance to ever ask uh, either Ed or Kevin – about their time together in Peru, uh, you'll have a great podcast because you'll have some great stories. They actually were were roommates in, in a in a. They were eating room peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, right? They were eating peanut butter and exactly. jelly sandwiches, watching Netflix late at night. That's it, and in a room the size of uh, probably the worst dorm room on Seton Hall's campus. You know, <laughs> this was not uh, the Four Seasons, that's for sure. So you've seen um, but, the campus. You've you've been to the dormitories at Seton Hall. I see. I can't tell you which one, and I'm not going to tell you what uh, portion of my life I was in the dorms. But it was before I was 20. Let's let's put it that way. Yeah. But um, Ed thinks that their program, Providence and Seton Halls, are very similar. Run by good guys, hardworking coaches, make their uh, players better. And they lose players for a quote lack of brand name, uh, and kids end up going to other quote you know higher level places, and don't get what I spoke about a little while ago the opportunity to be productive. And then what happens? They usually you know bounce around a little bit. Uh, Seton Hall has done actually a much better job than Providence with getting kids as transfers uh, on the rebound, and I think maybe a season like Seton Hall can have this year can help break that. And, you know, Providence uh, under Ed Cooley, nine years, uh, has had a really good run. But, guys, they've only won one NCAA tournament game. And, you know, I think that has stopped the elevation of their brand name that uh, Cooley is, uh, you know, talking about. Yeah, we don't know anything about only winning one NCAA tournament game in the last four years either there, Kevin. (laughs) I understand. Well, it's tough to do. It's a crapshoot. It's all about – matchups i still don't understand how seton hall a couple years ago got gonzaga in the first oh, round. No, no, oh, don't feed into it don't feed into the hype poking a bear oh, kevin come God. on that was a, that was a down year matchup down year for gonzaga they deserve the 11 seed stop it <sighs> yeah but they deserve okay, to well, get sent a little further than denver michael <laughs> all right we got to reel this back we're gonna get off the track here Coming back and talking about the current team for Providence, you know, they've gotten a lot of scoring from a lot of different players. As a matter of fact, in the last four games, they've had a different player lead the team in scoring. Would you say this is a compliment in respect to team balance, or do they need more of an alpha guy to lead the way? Uh, No, I think the strength of that team is their balance. Uh, The matchups around this league are, are different every night. You know, there's there's some teams with no no big guys like a Creighton. There's a team with NBA size like Seton Hall. Uh, you know, kind of not much size in a Villanova. Uh, it kind of all depends from from game to game. And sometimes Providence can you know work the ball inside. And Alpha Diallo is a really good post up uh, three four. Nate Nate Watson I think is as good of uh, interior score as there is in the league. Uh, I think Providence's biggest problem and just look at the stats the last two years. They've been one of the worst shooting teams, and especially from the three-point line in the league. Uh, if they can get consistency from the three-point line, then I think you'd see someone like Pipkins, for example. He, he, there's no reason for him not to be averaging 10 points a game. He's at 8.8 points a game. This is a kid who averaged over 20 at UMass. I think that says an awful lot about the A-10 versus the Big East, in all honesty, and also the free reign that he had at UMass. And uh, also, keeping honest, uh, he played on losing teams. And how many times have we seen, you know, high scores on losing teams? You see that a lot. That was really Pipkin's, uh, you know, background uh, at UMass. And to get him, uh, you know, to play for a winner and to shoot the ball with a little more consistency would really help Providence down the stretch. Okay, Kevin, let, let's transition to this week's matchup. Seton Hall has mm-hmm. got to be one of the hottest teams in the country right now. What does Providence have to do to get the road win in this one? 
Well, you know, I I only saw glimpses of the Seton Hall St. John's game, but uh, Providence played St. John's last Wednesday, so I'm familiar with the kind of rat game that they play, and I, I say that as a compliment. I, I give Mike Anderson an awful lot of credit with trying to I call it rat up the game. You know, it's uh, every loose ball is 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 a fight, is a battle, and uh, if I'm Ed Cooley and I turn on the film and I see that Seton Hall turned the ball over, I think it was 15 times in the first half of that game. That's how Providence wants to play. Uh, that's they want a low scoring, you know, game in the you know low 60s, uh, you know, 70 max, and they have to play physical. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know if they can do that against Seton Hall because of their size and strength. I'm really, really impressed right out of the shoot with with the addition of Obiagu, but Romaro Gill is is uh, you know he gets better every week, and the combination of those two guys. Versus uh, Nate Watson and Khalif Young, Providence's two big kids. They, they might have to get uh, the New York Giants. The, what's his name? The new New York Giants coach, the guy who was at uh, in New England. He, he might have to come scout those those four guys. Well, it's it's not just about trying to stop the big guys to keep Seton Hall in the sixties. You got a guy in Miles Powell who's putting in twenty nine a game. It seems like every night. How the heck do you slow down or at least try to contain Miles Powell? Well, believe me, uh, no one knows Powell better than Cooley because of uh, you know the Pan Am games this summertime, uh, and Providence just dealt with with Marcus Howard and didn't do it well. He scored 42 uh, against Providence just a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to say that everyone knows what Howard and Powell do, but they kind of know what they do, and you know, there's no stopping them. You just don't want them to go crazy. And, you know, Providence does have some good-sized defenders. David Duke is at the top of the list. Uh, keeping him on the floor and out of foul trouble uh, will really help slow down Powell a little bit because, in all honesty, if he's not around, it could be a long night for Malik White and, uh, and Lawan Pipkins. Although White's toughness, he's going to see an awful lot of Powell, too. Um, Beyond the improvement of McKnight makes Powell so much more dangerous offensively and assist-wise, I think he's averaging almost five assists a game. I think the improvement of McKnight really, really helps Seton Hall's you know chances here. Okay, we've talked about a lot of guys off the Providence team, but is there any player Seton Hall fans should keep an eye on that could end up being an unsung hero or an X-factor in this one? I, I would say the guy who, who has been up and down but he's a senior and can be and seems to play better on the road than at home is Malik White. So 6263 senior, very strong, a streaky shooter, he can make threes. Uh you know, he would be well down on the scouting report, Kevin Willard's scouting report. Obviously Duke coming off a career game and 36 points is going to be, you know, one or two. Alpha Diallo will be two or one. Again, Pipkins is a very streaky outside shooter. I'm, I'm sure he's going to be someone to worry about. And inside, Nate Watson, you know, I think can be neutralized because of Seton Hall's size. But Malik White is a guard, a streaky shooting guard, who if he gets going, you know, it can put up 15, 20 points as well. Okay, Kevin, we're going to put you on the spot. We want a prediction. Who takes this game? I like Seton Hall. I think Seton Hall's uh, the best team in the league right now. They're certainly playing better than anyone else. Uh, Seton Hall at home, I really like. And, I, I again, I think Providence, they like to muck up the game, be very physical, uh, enjoy a rebounding advantage. I just don't know if that can happen with, uh, you know, Tyree Samuel's improvement. And, and as I said earlier, uh, Gill and Obiagu, I, I think their size is going to be something that Providence is really going to have to worry about and combat. Kevin, I think you're only the second beat writer to come on our show that's actually picked Seton Hall. Everybody seems to kind of lean towards the home slant. Wow. Wow. I, I think they need to take off these rose-colored glasses and watch the games. <laughs> Kevin's been on the beat for 30 years. He's not afraid to upset his home contingent. <laughs> well, and also, uh, the other thing to consider is uh, Providence probably had its toughest loss of the season at Creighton. You know, 4-1, uh, and one, uh, going out there, looking to grab a win. Uh, get to five and one and kind of continue to save their season. Uh, guys, h- how about this stretch of games uh, that Providence is on? We haven't talked about this. That can be mentally draining. You know, you lose at Creighton in a game you think you should have won at Seton Hall, Villanova at home on Saturday at Butler. 
I mean, where's the, where's the win there? So maybe Creighton was the win. They, they watched that one slip through their fingers. Now it's, uh, you know, it's desperation time for Providence really because of that uh, poor start in the non-conference. I mean, the, the Big East is a gauntlet. It doesn't get any easier after that stretch. You then come home against Creighton at Xavier at St. John's, and then you got Seton Hall coming to town. I mean, there, there just is no relief in the Big East on a night in and night out. You're absolutely right, and that's why truly, you know, I know the NFL guys like to, like to do this. Well, we got a guy up in Foxborough who talks about it all the time, and it, it truly is in the Big East this year, just one game at a time because if you look ahead – yeah, it's it's mentally debilitating. <laughs> you can't be worried about Villanova when you have at Seton Hall as your next chore for the Friars. So it's one at a time. Uh, I, I will say that if these games continue to come down to the last you know minute, minute and a half, Providence does have an awful lot of experience. They have five seniors. Uh, we've talked about the progress of Duke as a sophomore. I, I do lean toward the more experienced teams and the teams with the better guards in those close games. And you know, that, that bodes well for Seton Hall with uh, who, who I think is, uh, you know, the best. Maybe if he's not the best guard in the country, he's in the top two or three. Well, Kevin, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and taking us behind enemy lines. We really appreciate your time today. Happy to help and good luck with your podcast the rest of the season. The Pirates are looking at a, maybe one of their better seasons in a long, long time. Uh, thanks again, Kevin. Kevin McNamara, everybody. So Kevin McNamara thinks we take care of business against Providence. I tend to agree, especially after the week we had, Mike. Actually, especially after the last three weeks we've had. What do you think in general about the last week, Michael? Look, we could break down the games as many different ways that we want. We won two road games in the Big East. We are now atop the standings at 6-0 and with a bit of a cushion, what, a game and a half ahead of Villanova. And they've won four road games out of their first six. I, I don't care if they are the the bottom feeders or the or, you know the second tier teams in the Big East. You go on the road and you win games in conference play. That is something that nobody can kind of pick on, no matter how kind of the games played out. I I cannot be any happier with where we stand at this point. But I'm getting a little greedy now, right? I I, I hate to look ahead, but you start looking ahead. Not only the Providence game, we got a mini three-game homestand. You got DePaul and Xavier, and Sandro is being predicted to come back for the DePaul game. Man, it, it'd be really nice to win those three games, maybe win at, at Georgetown is a little bit depleted, and, and dare I say, 10-0 and 0 heading into Nova? D- dare I say? You know, it sets up real nice, and Kevin McNamara warned about teams looking ahead, but we're not part of the team, so we can look ahead. Take care of your business, win at home, which is what we've said. You know, we what did we talk about earlier in the season? We said, take care of business at home, go 500 or better on the road, and you should be in good uh, position. Well, we're already 4-0 in nine road games. So, dare I say it, we're already halfway there of what we really want to do. Now you just got to take care of business at home. But that's not how we do things, right? So now you're 4-0 on the road, and now you're raising the bar again. So now I sit there and go, I, I was happy with 5-4 and four on the road and going 7-2 and two or 8-1 and one at home. Now we're sitting there going, hey, is 16-2, and 15-3 a possibility? You know, get, already crowning ourselves the biggest champs, and we're looking ahead to two seeds, three seeds. A one seed is what I read from here from yeah. time to time, depending on how things break out. It's just kind of what the fan base does. You get excited and you push the bar to the next level. But it, it's a lot to look down the road to. <laughs> and speaking of looking down the road, let's talk about the road to 2494. So Miles had a incredible week, scoring 58 points, bringing his career total up to 2022. He now is only the Fifth player in program history to surpass the 2,000 point mark. All right, Tom, I'm, I'm gonna start get. I'm gonna start getting excited again. I'm gonna start saying I'm, I'm back on the gravy train. We play three games in the Big East tournament. We make it to the second round. Miles has got to average 27.7. We make it to the Elite Eight, 24.8 points per game. And when we cut down the Nets in Atlanta at the title game. He's only got to average 22 and a half points per game. To take <laughs> Michael, you're sipping the Kool-Aid, buddy. I love it. But you know what? 
What we do know is he passed two all-time greats this week in Andre McLeod and Danny Calandrillo. Just to give folks an idea of who these guys were, Andre McLeod played for the Pirates between the years of 1982 and 1986. He earned all Biggie's freshman honors. He also was a third-team member twice as a sophomore and a junior. During his junior year, he almost scored 21 points a game. Now, his senior season scoring averages dipped a little bit, but in all fairness to Andre, that was Mark Bryant's sophomore season, and John Morton and Daryl Walker had just joined the team, so the talent base on that team had started climbing drastically. But for someone still to score... That many points for the team is pretty incredible. I wish I could give more insight. Andre McLeod is a little bit before my time. And so is this next guy who ranks in the pantheon of Seton Hall greats. And in my opinion, probably should have been another player who had his number retired or honored in, in, a, in a more special way than what we currently do. Danny Calandrillo played for the Pirates from 1978 to 1982. He was a three-time All-Big East performer. He had two second-team performances, but his senior year was special. He finished first-team All-Big East, and he also won Big East Player of the Year. And in that season, he averaged 25.9 points per game. We're talking about what kind of Miles has to do to break the record, and Danny was averaging that for an entire season. He started 107 of 108 games he played in his career and finished with 1,985 total points. And that's just not the only spot that he ranks amongst the Seton Hall's all-time list. His 18.83 points per game as a career average ranks eighth all-time. He has the fifth highest single-season scoring average from that 1982-1983 season. And to put that in perspective, Nick Workman holds the first three. That's crazy. And, and uh, you're, the, missing the, the, you're missing one thing, Mike. He was also voted in as third-team all-American his senior season. So he was nationally recognized as being a great player. And, Mike, you know, he, he's a little bit before my time, too. You know, most of the people in my age group, we think of Calandrillos. We're thinking of the bar we used to get in with the fake ID. Well, look, when, when you continue to stat sheet stuff like he did, you, you should have a bar named after you. He's 13th career in all-time starts, 8th in minutes played, 6th in field goals made, 4th all-time in free throws made, 14th in assists. And he had the steals record before Fu came along and broke it. So he's still now second all time at 260. But I mean, you got guys that have passed him on some of these, uh, you know, accolades throughout the year. So when he graduated, he was much further up on some of these ranks. I mean, to put it into some context, he wins Biggie's Player of the Year in the same season where guys like Sleepy Floyd, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen, and John Bagley also make all Biggie selections. Seton Hall was 11 and 16 that year. 2-12 and 12 in the Big East, and he still gets the vote to be Big East Player of the Year? I mean, that just says a lot. It's crazy impressive when you think about it. Next on the list for Miles to potentially pass is another guy that is not quite well-known with the modern-day fan. His name is Greg Tynes, and he's got 2,059 points, and he's all alone in fourth place right now. Are, are we going to be talking about Miles passing him after the next game? Is, is 37 a possibility against the Friars? It's always a possibility, especially at home. He gets hot, and all of a sudden, we're talking about it next week. So, Mike, we got one game this week. Let's hope they don't trip over their own feet because I think that's the only way they lose here is they beat themselves in this game. What did Kevin McNamara say? One game at a time. Let's go, Pirates. Go Big Blue. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Daziri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Pirates. <laughs>